The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we are, to, we are for what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word to us. Hey, this is one of my uh, favorite Sundays of the year. And it's not just because at 3.25 this afternoon, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to start their Super Bowl run. Um, it's, it's also because uh, this is our first uh, like 55 degree morning. And so for the next three or four days, we're all going to look like an Eddie Bauer uh, commercial. Uh, and then it's supposed to be 95 again at the end of the week. So don't, don't put your summer clothes away yet. But hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Derek and I'm the community director here. And man, we're, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians for for several months. Uh, so if you missed those first two sermons, you can get those on our podcast feed. Um, but I, I just want to give us a little context for this book of the Bible, right? So, so this, is, um, this is a letter that's written by Paul to the church in Corinth. And, and one of my favorite things about scripture is that it confirms itself, Meaning this church in Corinth is not just a, it's not just a random church that, uh, that they just decided to include in Scripture. This is, a, this is a, a church that we actually got to see planted in Acts chapter 18, right? Paul uh, goes to Corinth and he starts to preach the gospel to the Jews and, and they're just not having it. They're, they're not listening, they're not hearing. And, and so he, he, he chooses to, to, to leave them and, and, and to step over and to start to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He, he gets traction, and that's where this church is born. And, and there's, this, there's this neat moment in Acts chapter 18 where we hear God's heart for this city, and we hear God's heart for this church. So Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid, and go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. 
What an encouraging word from God about this small church plant, right? There are many people in Corinth who are my people, so go on speaking, go on preaching with confidence. So, so Paul stays there for 18 months, preaching the gospel, preaching the truth. And, and then he goes on, uh, I think, to Antioch is the next place that he goes to, to plant another church. But this moment now, when he's writing this letter back to the church in Corinth, uh, they're in a different place than they were when he left. This church is really, uh, really messed up in a lot of ways. They're following worldly lusts. They're, they're not unified anymore. There's a ton of, of disunity in this church. They're actually misusing God's gifts. It's, it's a pretty ugly situation. And it would have been really easy in this letter for Paul to write, um, hey, remember God's standard? God's standard is here. And, and the way that you're living looks like this. And so you need to adjust your standard accordingly, right? And, and he gets to that eventually. He, he, he does correct some of their actions, but he, he doesn't start there. He, he starts with his love and his affection for these people. He, he starts with, with appealing to them to, to move toward unity because we all have unity in the gospel. And then, and then here at the end of this chapter, he, he talks about the wisdom of God and the goodness of God through the nature of God. So as I've, as I've read this passage, as I've read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, there's, there's, there's three, three ideas that jumped off the page at me that I'd like to, I'd like to talk through this morning. The, the first of which is that worldly wisdom values power. Worldly wisdom values the powerful. The second is that godly wisdom values the lowly. Godly wisdom values the lowly. So you can see that those are different. And the last point is that, is that God values the least among us so that he might be glorified, so that he might be glorified. And, and one of the neat things, again, about Scripture is that, is that Paul is not communicating a new idea. Right? This isn't something that Paul came up with. We actually, we can see this story of worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom, uh, and then God glorified. We can see that progression all through Scripture. And so this morning, I want to I use the story of King Saul and David, and then David and Goliath as an illustration that's, that's going to show us worldly wisdom, godly wisdom, and then God glorified. But I'd, I'd love for you to, to pray for me as, as, I, uh, as we jump in, and I'll, and I'll pray for you. Father, we need you this morning. We need your spirit to, 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 to convict us. God, we, we need you to speak to us through the word. God, I pray that as we open your word, uh, that, that things, would, uh, things would pop out to us as being really clear and that we might leave here with both a, a, a better picture of you, a more accurate picture of who you are, but also a more accurate pi picture of who we are in light of, of Jesus, in light of this good gospel. So we welcome you into this place. God, we ask you to do work this morning. Amen. Amen. So, so worldly wisdom values power. Right? The, the wisdom of the world is different than the wisdom of God. And, and as proof, I, I want to I open up and look at uh, verses 18 through 20 here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. It says, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing would be those of the world, right? So the, the cross is folly to the world, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God, it being the cross. 
So the cross is the power of God to those of us being saved, but it's folly to those who are perishing. He goes on to say, uh, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise in the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, see, worldly wisdom doesn't value the crucifixion of a king, right? Worldly wisdom doesn't value death on a cross, and yet, and yet it was the wisdom of God, right? God made foolish the wisdom of the world, and, and we see that all throughout Scripture. So I, I, I'd invite you to turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, and, and we're going to join this story the story of the Israelites who, I, I kind of think of the Israelites as, as like the four R's, right? They're, they're rescued, and then they rebel, and then they repent, and then they repeat, right? So, so they, are, they are saved, and, and then uh, they rebel against him, and, and, then, and then they repent of that, and then they just go through the whole cycle again. And then in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we find the elders from the Israelites going to Samuel, who's God's prophet, going to Samuel and, and, and saying, hey, um, we know God's been really faithful to us, but we, we want a king. When we look around uh, our context, all the other nations have kings, and, and we want one of those. So um, we see in, uh, in 1 Samuel uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 7, it says, this is God's response to uh, Samuel. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in that they say to you, in, in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is God speaking. These people have rejected me from being king over them. And so, so Samuel goes back to the Israelites and he says, Listen, I, I know you think you want a king, I know you think that that is true. However, uh, this king that you want is going to garnish your wages. Th this king that you want is going to mistreat your sons and your daughters. I and there's going to be a day, if you're given this king, that you're going to cry out for mercy uh, because you, 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 the king that you wanted has failed. And, and so uh, we see the Israelites' response to Samuel in chapter, uh, eight, still in chapter 8, verses uh, 19 and 20, uh, the, the people say, uh, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there, there shall not be a king over us, that we may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So, so, so God says to the Israelites, fine, if you want a king, if you think you want a king, then I'll give you a king. And, and so he gives them a king, and of course, I'm speaking of King Saul. King Saul, who by all worldly standards, is really wise. He's, he's tall, he's powerful, he's rich, he's basically Gaston, right? Like, he is, he's, this, he's this king who is utilized in these ways, and and, and, and yet, and yet, Saul fails. Saul fails miserably. He disobeys God, and, and he ends up dying this, this, this horribly 
um, embarrassing death, right? Saul is a perfect example of worldly wisdom. The Israelites thought that they were wiser than God, and, and so they, they asked for this worldly leader. And, and here's, here's what's true, friends. At any time that we look to something or someone other than God to provide us with safety, to provide us with stability, we're practicing the wisdom of the world and, and we're in sin. Like God is the only one that provides safety. God is the only one that provides stability. So, so for the Israelites, they're, they're looking for a, a, a king to lead them, just like all the other nations. But what are, what are we demanding here in Yukon, America? Right? Is, it, is it the right school district? Man, if I can get my kids in the right school situation, whether that be homeschooling or private school or public school, uh, if I can get them in the right schooling situation, then they're going to have the best education and they're going to grow up to know Jesus and they're going to be safe. Right? M- maybe it's not schools for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's a job promotion. I mean, if, I can, if I can bring in a little more income every month, then the anxiety that I feel around my finances is going to go away. Maybe it's neither of those things for you. Maybe it's like a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a home or it's a neighborhood. If, if I could put my family in this type of home in this neighborhood, then we could, we could spread out and we could actually find peace and rest. Now, I, I can't tell you what it is that you're looking toward, but, but I can say that, um, that there's a diagnostic question that you can ask yourself that says this, do, do, do parts of my life look like folly to my friends who don't know Jesus? Do parts of my life look like folly to my friends who don't know Jesus? Because if the only difference between your life and the lives of your friends who don't know Jesus is that, is that you come here on Sunday mornings and your friends go to Vaca on Sunday mornings, then, then we might have a, have a problem, right? Like, like, it's so easy, just like we say the, 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 the church in Corinth, those Corinthians looked more like Corinth than they did like Jesus. It's really easy for us, friends, to, to be worldly people that sit in a church on Sundays and not be godly people that live in the world the other six days of the week. So, 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 so what, are the, what are the markers, what are the things that, that Jesus calls us to that do look foolish to the world? Right? There, are, there are lots of those things, right? Like we're, we're called to give away some of our money without any guarantee on return on that investment. Right? We're, we're called to invite strangers into our, into our living rooms and to sit at our dining tables to, to dine with our families. That's, that, that feels foolish to the world. Right? We, we are called to make decisions thinking first and foremost about the mission of God and second about our own comfort. All of those things would be viewed as wise in in God's eyes and foolish in the world's eyes. So so what is the wisdom of God? What does Paul say the wisdom of God is? I think that the wisdom of God values the lowly. Read with me verses 22 and 23 back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly 
to the Gentiles. See, the, the Jews were, were leaning on religion and, and, and morality for their wisdom. Right? In the, in, in the Gentiles, they were, they were leaning on economic power and political power. That, that was their wisdom. And the Greeks were leaning on philosophy. They were leaning on academia for their wisdom. But, 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 but Christ, while he fulfilled all of those things, did it in a way that no one expected. Right? The, the promised redeemer was born as a baby among farm animals. This, this promised reliever lived as a nomad, right? This, this promised redeemer, this is maybe the, the most important piece. He died at age 33, which, which should have been the age that, that an earthly king is coming into his prime. And yet, and yet here is this man, this redeemer, hanging naked on a cross between two criminals. You can see how this feels like folly, Right? Like, where is Gaston, right? Where's, where is the handsome, rich king? Where's the warrior who is going to lead his people, right? God values different things than we do. And, and we can see that if, if we look back again at 1 Samuel and we see the way that God reacts when Saul fails, because Saul does fail, right? So, so Saul, Saul, King Saul disobeys God. And, and, and so God goes to Samuel, his prophet, and says, listen, I need you to go to Bethlehem, and I need you to go talk to a man named Jesse. And Jesse has many sons, and one of his sons, one of Jesse's sons is going to be my king. He's going to be a better king than Saul. He's going to be the type of king that I'm going to call. And so, so, so Samuel goes and finds Jesse, and he says, hey, Jesse, will you gather your sons together? I'd love to, I'd love to meet them. And Samuel's sitting there, and he's looking around the room, and he's met all of these sons, and he, and he looks back at Jesse, and he says, are, are these all of your kids? Because none of these kids are the one who I feel like the Lord is asking me to anoint. He's saying that in his mind. And, 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 and Jesse says, oh, well, I have one other son. He's, uh, he's my youngest. He's the baby of the family, but he's out in the pasture. Did you, did you want to meet him? And Samuel's like... Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, I think that's it. So, so, so here comes David, and as soon as Samuel meets David, he, he anoints him as the future king. Right? Let's, let's think about the statistics on King David. He's the youngest in his family, so he's, he's not in line for some kind of a firstborn inheritance, right? He's poor. He, he's a shepherd, which means he spends a lot of time with sheep. Right? He's, he's not spending a lot of time with powerful people. He's not some kind of powerful uh, uh, political powerhouse. Right? He's, he's, he's lowly in that way. And then also, he's a musician. He's not a warrior. Eventually, he'll become a warrior. But in this moment, he is a musician. And, and yet, David is also the man who God says is after his own heart. This is the man who's going to write over half of our psalms in Scripture, and, 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 and this is the man who Matthew says is, is the father of David, or sorry, the father of Jesus, right? Which, which obviously David is not Jesus' dad, but it's through David's lineage that we eventually get Jesus, the Redeemer. See, David is God's wisdom on display, 
And, 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 and this is God choosing the lowly. Or as, as, as Paul puts it in verse 26 in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, calling the lowly. Listen, listen to that, that verse. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So here's, a, here's a, an interesting thing. That what I just read is, is the ESV translation of that verse. And, and if we look at the NIV translation, it says, it says, brothers and sisters, consider who you were when you were called. Right? Right. Paul is reminding the, the, the church in Corinth that they are lowly, that they weren't of noble birth, that they weren't powerful, and they were chosen because they're lowly, because they weren't of noble birth. Right? Think, about, think about what I said at the beginning in, in Acts chapter 18. Right, like Paul goes and preaches the gospel to the Jews first, and then he goes and preaches it to the Gentiles. This is godly wisdom on display. Look at verses 27 and 28. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about things that are. See, I, I, think, that, I think that Paul here is reminding the church in Corinth that they're like David. They, they, were, they were lowly. They are not of noble birth, and yet God called them because that's what God does. Right? Out of an abundance of his wisdom, God chooses the lowly and the unseen just as he's been doing since the beginning of time. So, so we've established that the that worldly wisdom values power, and, and, and godly wisdom values the lowly. So, so we find ourselves at the final question of why. why. Why? Why does God use the least among us? And I think the answer has to be so that he might be glorified. So that he might be glorified. Think back one more time to the story of a boy and a giant in First Samuel. And I'm not talking about a, a big, cuddly giant like Hagrid, right? I, I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the type of giant who is nine feet tall and, and is a trained assassin, who, who, is, who has been spending his time mocking the Israelites, and the Israelites are, are, are shaking in their boots because of, of this giant, right? And God chooses not to create his own giant. God chooses not to surround Goliath with a thousand Israelite soldiers, God chooses to use David, that young boy, and, and he doesn't even equip him, this is just a side note, he, he doesn't even equip him with a sword. He doesn't equip him with armor, right? That stuff doesn't work for David. He goes with five stones and a strap of leather, right? Why? So that anybody who would look upon this situation or read that story in the Bible could say nothing other than, man, God must have been at work here. Praise God for his work through David, because David killing Goliath was entirely illogical, right? It made no sense, and yet, for God, it was obvious, 
right? And, and, and we, we, now that we have all of Scripture, we shouldn't be surprised. We see this over and over and over again, right? We can, we can think about Sarah and Abraham, who are this old couple who are barren. They haven't been able to have any children, and yet God uses these two, uh, these two people to bring forth the nation of Israel, right? God uses Moses, who is this stammering and stuttering poor public speaker to lead his people out of Egypt. God uses Ruth, who is, who is this widow, this refugee, and, and she's the, one of the only women named in the genealogy of Jesus. And then there's Noah, right? Poor Noah, who's, who's laughed at and scorned and mocked, and, and yet it was it was through Noah's building of the ark that, that God preserved his creation. Right? The only common thread that we can find here is that none of this makes sense to us, and yet it makes total sense to God. Right? This, these, these people are foolish to the world. And just like, but just like David, God chose them so that, so that all of the glory would be given to him, and that we might not say, oh, well, David was a great warrior first, or Moses was this wonderful leader. It was only because of God that, that David was victorious or Moses could lead these people. Now, look, look with me at verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. See, Jesus is the manifestation of God's wisdom. It's, it's through God's wisdom that he sent his son, a, a tender baby, vulnerable to be raised by humans to experience loneliness and rejection, and despair. All of those things were through God's wisdom. And he also let that same man die. And, and through his death, we all might be made righteous, which means that we're made right with God, that, that we would all be sanctified, which means that, that God is continually working in our hearts and our minds to make us look more like Jesus and that we might be redeemed, right? So that when God looks at us, he, he sees our sinful debt paid in full because of the work of Jesus. He, he, he makes all of our broken pieces come together and make something that's whole again. See, Paul saw God's wisdom on display through the work of Jesus in the Corinthian church. And so he concludes with this verse at the end of this passage, which I just, I just hope is written on our hearts as we leave this morning, that says, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I, I don't want to I don't want to send us all to our brunch plans or our lunch plans without taking a couple of minutes here to, to just think through what, is, what did this mean for the church in Corinth? And, and then also, what, what's this mean for us here in Yukon at Frontline Church? The, 
the first thing that I want to bring your attention to is that the gospel is our identity and our security. And if our hope is in anything else, then, then it's sin, right? Then it's, it's sin. I, I, was, I was talking to a friend recently, and we were talking about tithing, talking about giving uh, a portion of what we have away. And I, was just, I just entered in this conversation as, as I have before, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of this conversation, I realized, man, when I sit down to pay my bills, when, when, when I go to the grocery store, when I make a purchase, I almost always have a pang of, of anxiety in my belly. There's, there's something in me um, that, that is still grasping to my bank account for safety and stability. And in that moment, I just, felt, I just felt God's good conviction of an area of my life that I'm still holding on to worldly wisdom. So, so, so my only response in that moment is, is to confess it to the Lord, to confess it to my wife, to confess it to my friends, and, and to confess it to my church. Right? And, 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 and let me be clear, man, this is, this is not a budgeting problem. This is not an, an income problem. This is not an overspending problem. This is, this is actually a, 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 a heart problem. Right? This is a, a root sin issue in my life. And so I get to confess that to the Lord and confess it to the people around me, and they speak the gospel back to me. Like, that's a beautiful moment. I, I, want, I want more of those moments in our church. So I would encourage you to interrogate your own soul, <laughs> to, to, to think deep down, where are the places that you believe the cross isn't enough? What is it that when you think about it, you feel anxiety? See, the, the cross is, is, is not something that we just add to our lives. It's actually something that transforms our lives. So, so whatever comes to the surface, when you ask yourself those questions, I, I would encourage you to name it. I encourage you to confess it to the Lord, and, and, and repent, which means just turn away from it. Secondly, the, the gospel is an anecdote to our pride. It's an anecdote to our pride. L listen to what's true. Your sin problem is much worse than you realize. But, but beneath your, your open concept homes and, and your Instagrammable vacations and your Honda Odysseys, you are much more broken. We are much more broken than we realize. The only thing that's deeper than our sin problem is the ocean of grace that's offered to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the only thing that's deeper. So, so that means, again, that the cross is not something that we add to our lives. It's something that transforms our lives. The cross eliminates our pride. And, and, and the last conclusion here is, is that the, the good news of the gospel elevates the lowly and it humbles the proud. Elevates the lowly and humbles the proud. So, so maybe you walked in this morning and you're thinking, um, man, I don't even feel worthy to have walked in the doors. I, I, I feel forgotten. I feel lonely. I, I feel overlooked. I feel like I've, 
I've done too many things and feel too far away from God. Let, let, me, let me be really clear here. God does his best work through misfits. God does his best work through misfits. And, and, and maybe you're on the other side of that coin. Maybe you walked in and you're actually thinking to yourself, like, I'm, I'm doing okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty hard worker, and I'm pretty intelligent, and I'm pretty thoughtful, uh, and, and I've got a, got a pretty good bank account at this point. Let me just say that, like, w- without the work of Jesus, scriptures tell us that your good works are like filthy rags to God. And so let me say it again, the same thing that I said to the lowly, we are all misfits. We're all misfits. And it's, and it's through misfits that, that God does his best work. So I, I, would, I, would, I would hope and pray that as we leave here this morning, we'd be encouraged to, to walk away knowing that if we boast we only boast in, in the Lord and the work of Jesus. Would you pray with me?